An analysis article in the BMJ looks at some of the challenges of applying guidelines in practice and explores the potential benefits of a new generation of knowledge tools that prioritise patient preferences and enable shared decision-making. I'm Navjoit Lada, Analysis Editor, and I'm joined now by one of the authors of the article, Professor Glyn Elwin from the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. What prompted you to write the paper and what issues were you trying to address? Okay, um, I, th- I think it's it's the realization I think that you know there's been a criticism of both evidence-based medicine as traditionally understood, and also these rather you know large documents that are called clinical guidelines from authoritative bodies that run to hundreds of pages. And although people understand the gist in them uh, usually, and they work on an operating knowledge which is in their heads and talking to colleagues and uh, reading much more kind of summaries of these kind of uh, documents. And yet when they talk to patients, they find that they are missing the, oh, what's the risk of that happening? Or what's the probability that this outcome will occur in terms of comparing treatments? Guidelines make very usually broad recommendations, but they don't give the how many people in a hundred will have this side effect or have this benefit. So that level of how can we compare treatments realistically is very difficult for clinicians because that data is not made available either in research papers or in guidelines, actually. So it's that kind of practical aspect um, that's quite that's quite difficult with guidelines. That's one issue. And the second issue is that Often guidelines come out the world from a biomedical perspective, you know, what's the side effect of indigestion or diarrhea or something. And yet sometimes patients come at this from a, what's the benefit for me? What's the burden for me in terms of trying to take this treatment? What's the work I have to do? What's the effect on my how I live my life? The, the kind of life world of the patient is more relevant to them than some of the outcomes that are measured in research trials, as you know. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that your article sets out so beautifully is that disconnect between how clinicians learn and how consultations are carried out and the kind of prescriptive knowledge that guidelines give us sometimes and the um, broader, more practical, more contextual um, ways that doctors uh, or clinicians actually learn. Can you tell us a bit more about that? One of the ways that I think, I mean, yes, actually in your in the BMJ, um, we, we referenced this Gabe paper, um, I think it was, when was it, 2004, 12 years ago now, um, very beautiful paper about interviewing a set of general practitioners about how they um, make uh, kind of sense of the scientific literature. And yes, they uh, read journals, they read guidelines, they, they get the guidelines for the post, but they also uh, leverage a lot their relationships with their immediate clinicians, professional bodies, and patients, and reading of the newspaper. So they meld this into a kind of uh, what Levi Strauss called a bricolage, you know, a bag of, bag of tricks, basically, and put together heuristics or rules of thumb. Oh, yes, we've got this patient who is 80 who's got hypertension. Therefore, we tend to do this. So you kind of pattern recognition and using the kind of network of knowledge around you. That's how clinicians make sense of their daily work. And I, and I think increasingly they're becoming curious about how to tailor scientific evidence to the patient in front of them, which is essentially shared decision making. 
Mm. And and where do guidelines fit into that, do you think? Like, do we know how much guidelines influence practice and shared decision-making? I don't think we know much about that at all. We know that guidelines make usually a set of very uh, scientifically-based recommendations, but they don't try and parse that out into if you have somebody who's um, elderly or younger than this age group from the studies, consider that you might want to tailor your um, advice in a different way or you might want to say you know we don't know for example if you have 100 patients how 40 of them have this set of preferences and 60 of them have this set of preferences we have no scientific knowledge about the range or even uh, kind of type of different preference sets that patients have when faced these decisions. We've got a lot of knowledge about the outcomes in research studies, but hardly any knowledge about the range of preferences that are important to patients. So in the paper, you outline a number of challenges of producing and using guidelines, and you've mentioned some of them already. So that kind of applicability of the studies that guidelines incorporate to real-world patients, if you like, and then the fact that guidelines are just part of a kind of bag of tricks, as you say. Um, Are there any other sort of big issues, you think, that um, are particular challenges with guidelines? Um, I think those are the most ones. I mean, we could go on to say, you know, the the concern that there always exists about competing interests, uh, people with relationships to pharmaceutical industry being on the guideline panels. I think that's an old issue, and I don't want to bring that up to the fore too much, but it's always there. Um, What are the influences on these um, kind of guideline recommendations? Um, The fact that these are heavily produced by clinicians from a scientific discourse rather than um, having many stakeholders around the table means that the kind of life world of patients and patients' issues are often omitted from these kind of professional um, recommendations. So those are the kind of things that are salutary, I think. Okay. Um, So what you're proposing in the paper are new knowledge tools to that fit more into a clinical encounter and address some of these shortcomings if you like um can you tell us a bit more about them what do they look like and and how might they work well i I think what we're proposing is that uh, shared decision making has got three elements first of all um helping people become informed about what they're facing Um, And that means a kind of bilateral exchange of information, I think. Yes, we need to tell you whether option A, uh, what happens there. If you do option B, what happens there? And maybe even what happens with the natural history. We we may be in a position where we can watch and wait, for example. So these alternatives are the real world. People don't decide, um, or they often don't say, oh, tell me exactly what to do and I'll follow it. We know that happens but often it leads to non-compliance, as we know people vote with their feet and so on. So the real world is about comparing alternatives. What shall I do in this situation? Uh, And what we're proposing is tools that help do that comparison, that comparative learning. And for that to happen efficiently, you've got to uh, break the information down into 
what are the attributes that are relevant? We, most of us make big decisions on very limited attributes. You know, is the house near the school? Has it got three bedrooms? Um, what's the neighborhood like? Uh, what's the school like in the neighborhood? Those are the kind of attributes, three or four attributes that help us make a major decision in our life. It, the same in medicine. What are the most salient issues that face patients? You know, what are the harms? And are there major problems here? But on the other hand, what are the benefits? And what do I have to do? And how much is it going to cost me, either in time or money and so on? So organizing tools that help you compare alternatives using these attributes, and we call them frequently asked questions, um, is a key development in this field. And it helps, I think, clinicians and patients to put those on the table and then have a conversation around them. It's scaffolding for the conversation, if you like. You know, in this situation, let me try and help you walk through what are the possible alternatives. And that's a much more grown-up conversation that's saying, um, in medicine, we do this, um, and I'll see you in a month after you've tried this bag of uh, tablets, as it were. So that's the kind of thing that these knowledge tools are trying to generate, a better conversation, which has to be augmented, of course, with other issues and other information. But these tools set out that scaffold for that conversation. Right. And that um, is some of the work that you've been doing on option grids. Is that right? Exactly. And um, we've alighted on this idea of using uh, columns of alternatives and then frequently asked questions down the side. And it goes down to the kind of theoretical work of heuristics and decision making. Um, the work of Gerd Gerenza, for example, in Berlin, where they say, as humans, we make decisions, big decisions often on limited amount of information because uh, otherwise, you have cognitive overload and you can't actually make the comparisons. So these tools allow you to compare one attribute at a time. Um, uh, other methods of doing this are to put things out in icon arrays or visual displays of risk. But we actually feel that the attributes are the important starting place. And then you need tools to kind of convey the visual level of risk. How many people in 100 have this problem or benefit and so on? So these are just visual um, uh, uh, skeletons, if you like, to help you do that comparative learning. And then um, we think, and we actually have some evidence from studies at the moment showing that conversations change because patients are more willing to ask the questions that other people have asked before them. Say, so, oh, you mean other people have asked these questions, so therefore I feel empowered to ask the same questions. And then the conversation changes from one of, oh, this is the default issue, to one of, oh, I didn't realize that we had a choice here, so let me engage in the conversation. So these short tools that actually fit into 10 or 15 minute encounters begin, if you like, they don't finish, but they begin a better conversation. If you think about what happened in the 70s, and actually Cochrane, need, we need a rigorous summary of clinical trials that led to the Cochrane Review by um, Ian Chalmers and so on. Um, the guideline world, I think, has begun to realize that the end user of all this evidence is it's not really the doctor, it's the patient and their carer. And so as soon as we make this evidence accessible and transparent and understandable to the real end user, we see a paradigm shift in how we present data. So I think that's the journey we're on. Um, I mean, what I'm interested in is that there's this idea that um, a lot of the information that is needed about uh, benefits and harms, it just isn't out there, and particularly 
the information that you can apply to perhaps the patient sitting in front of you. So how have you addressed that with um, some of the work you've done? It's true. Um, Often research papers will present things in odd ratios, um, uh, and that's very difficult for um, people to understand. Or they'll use relative risk um, as one uh, option being better than the other by a degree of you know twenty-five or thirty percent. That's really confusing for people. And what has been found in the risk communication literature is that if we use natural frequency, in other words. What's the natural history of this condition? If we just leave it alone, there's maybe five in a hundred that have this harm or have this benefit. What if we add in a treatment? How many people, how many more people in a hundred benefit and how many people in a hundred might suffer this harm A or harm B? This use of natural frequency is much more intuitive and is refers to something called absolute risk or natural frequency. Um, What happens in a population of people like you, the reference class and so on. So this is the way that we've been structuring uh, option grids. This is how uh, the group at uh, Mayo, Victor Montoriano, use the icon arrays. It refers to a much more natural understanding of risk um, on an absolute risk basis. And that's helping people to understand and compare. Now, research papers don't present risk in this way, and guidelines, they don't use these kind of tools at the moment to present risk because guidelines usually don't uh, lay out comparable treatments. They usually make a best practice recommendations. So I see this as a paradigm shift, if you like, in evidence-based medicine to say we need better data presented to patients about comparing risks And surprise, surprise, doctors find this equally useful, if not more useful as well. Yeah, I was going to say it it wouldn't just be a benefit to patients, although that's clearly the priority. But I can imagine a lot of doctors would also find this extremely useful. Absolutely. And when we make option grids and other tools like this, we find that clinicians say, wow, I didn't realize actually the numbers here. So it's actually a revelation to them usually because the guidelines have broad statements, but they don't have the numbers. So they begin to see the marginal benefit of a statin, for example, in somebody for primary prevention. It's pretty marginal, uh, you know, 1% benefit in five years perhaps, but they see that absolute absolute risk benefit and they begin to say, oh, okay, so now I put this into perspective. Um, And I actually think that generating these kinds of tools puts the the relative risk that most pharmaceutical companies use into perspective and allows a more transparent conversation. Mm. And I'm also interested in how um, you mentioned, you know, you you, uh, describe it as a list of frequently asked questions. What work goes into finding out what questions are important um, to to which groups? Um, how, How do you approach that? That's a very important question. Um, you'll be aware of the James Lind Alliance, which has been kind of working between clinicians and patients, trying to say what are the important concerns of patients and how these should feed into research issues. 
We do similar kind of work by actually doing qualitative studies, focus groups, or uh, sometimes we do quantitative work, surveys of large numbers of patients with a relevant condition. And we, by those methods, we elicit the concerns that are really relevant to somebody with psych, uh, psoriasis or psychosis. We're building a tool for first episode psychosis at the moment. Um, and we're interviewing people who have these conditions. So then we rank them and say, what are the, what's the importance of these issues? And as you know, in the option grids, we actually use six or seven questions. So there's a lot that we have to um, put into other uh, material. But often um, this process of ranking the issues is highly illuminating because people worry about how um, much time will it take me to get back to work or to resume uh, normal activities, including uh, sexual activity. And these are the kind of issues that often are missing from uh, research studies, things that are relevant to the life world of the patient. Mm. Very good. Um, and so what do you see as being the ne next steps? I mean, how, how do these get rolled out so that, you know, they can become the norm in consultations? Um yeah, that's a massive <laughs> question. <laughs> well, first of all, I think one of the challenges for making these tools is what you've touched on. What are the most common concerns of patients? That's a guiding principle for us. The second issue is the evidence synthesis. And we're beginning to work with people who are really expert at doing evidence synthesis, conflict-free evidence synthesis, Cochrane, um, Dynamed Plus, and uh, looking at other organizations that really do a good job of evidence synthesis. And then marrying the worlds, if you like, of what are the patient concerns, what's a rigorous evidence base, and then doing the editorial work to put those short tools together. We'd love it if um, we could do this at a very large scale. We're working on some solutions to that. But you, at the moment, we've got about 40 tools, I think, in the Option Group Collaborative. But we'd love it to cover the waterfront of medicine. And that's a big task, I think. Um, and then access, you know, trying to make this work in terms of getting them free to patients. That's another challenge for us. We're considering, uh, could that be a wiki process? Uh, could there be a philanthropic funder? All that kind of stuff. Because our principle is to make these freely accessible and, if possible, um, at the you know at the end of a Google search. But that's um, a long way away at the moment. Um, but that's the scenario: equally accessible to patients as they would be to clinicians. And that we feel would take the guideline world a massive step forward if we could achieve that. In terms of implementation, I believe that we're on the paradigm shift here of evidence-based medicine, beginning to understand that patient preferences has to be married with the evidence base and that respecting informed choice is at the core of evidence-based practice. Then we'll see the measurement of that in, in clinical practice, patients experiencing shared decision-making being a key outcome in clinical performance measurement. We're not there yet, but people are developing measures of that kind of experience from the patient perspective. And when we get that to be a performance metric rather than hitting a diabetes uh, level of you know, HbA1c or a glucose level of X, a more important metric than a, your glucose level is whether your preferences have been informed and respected, I think. I'm Navjoit Larder, and you've been listening to Professor Glyn Elwin talking about new knowledge tools. That paper, Clinical Encounters in the Post-Guidelines Era, is now available on the bmj.com.